Welcome to another episode of Drew World Order. I am State Representative Andrew Fink. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host and colleague, State Representative Andrew Beeler. Hi, Andrew. It is good to be here recording another episode, and we are joined by another special guest, State Representative Brian Posthumus, the son of former Lieutenant Governor Dick Posthumus and the brother of the former State Rep, Lisa Posthumus Lyons, and the current Kent County Commissioner. Clerk. Clerk. I knew it started with a C. Hey, you know what? When you get the alliteration in, it uh, <laughs> it, it gets confusing. We, we joked about the alliteration before, and there you go. It screwed me up. Current Kent County Clerk, Lisa Posthumous Lines. Thanks for joining us, Brian. Oh, thanks for having me, guys. I, I appreciate it. I've been I've been wanting to come on for a while since I heard you guys were doing this. So this is great. I'm looking forward to it. And I just appreciate it. I hear we're talking about divided government That's and right. how that works. That's right. Yeah. And it's an interesting time. I mean, right now we're serving with some members who uh, did not serve in divided government. And obviously our incoming class is. And so hearing their experiences, <laughs> boy, I mean, grass is always greener for sure. But Brian's been around the block a lot. He's seen many different uh, relationships between the governor's administration and the, the House and Senate. Um but what a unique time that we live in. Not only is it politically charged, but we have divided government here in Michigan, making it very challenging to get what we would consider good policy done sometimes. Yeah, and actually, it's, it's probably exacerbated by the fact that we, controlling the Michigan legislature, our party is, uh, is also not in power in Washington. And a lot of the work that we've had, well, a lot of the appropriations work we've done for the last nine months or whatever has to do with money being spent by, yeah. uh, by another entity and kind of dumped in our lives for us to sort of figure out what to do with. And I think in the sense that you consider state government a firewall from the federal government, we in divided government, I would say, have a at least a chink in our armor with divided government. <laughs> yeah, we can. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So we kind of, uh, in, in just preparing, uh, as we talked about this conversation, talked about the different categories of policy that we work on. And uh, Brian, maybe that's where you can start with us. Obviously, we're realistic about what the governor will sign and what, what's going to make it through the finish line. Talk to us about that psychology. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a couple things. So first of all, I mean, when you, when you look at what the legislature has done as a whole, especially coming from the house of representatives, some of the things that we've worked on, uh, we've, we've done a lot of election reform things. Uh, we're trying to restore confidence in our elections, but some of that's going to get signed into law. A lot of it probably won't get signed into law. When you look at the budget process, I mean, that's a big negotiated ordeal because that has to get done. That statute, we're statutorily required to get that done. And the governor has to sign that into law. Uh, when you look at fiscally conservative policies that we in the House want to get through, uh, you, you know, you, when you have a, a governor of the opposing party, you have to figure out where you can succeed and where you can't succeed. I mean, you look at taxes, for example, uh, we haven't gotten a single tax cut passed by the governor uh, since since she's uh, since she sat down uh, since she took office. And, and and so trying to figure out how to do that and, and, and get conservative policies through the finish line is uh, is what it takes. And it, it takes a, a lot of conversations and figuring out where you can meet. Adding to the fog of war of divided government. We have seen both uh, that the governor won't sign bills uh, which have no bipartisan support in the House or Senate. However, some bills that have overwhelming bipartisan support still won't be signed, yeah. which just adds to the frustration. Yeah. That's a really good point. That's a really good point. And um, Brian, something you said reminded me of this, but I don't think we said, we, we mentioned that uh, your family's from Kent County, but your district is, it's not completely in Kent County, right? You have a little bit 
not with non Kent County too, right? Uh, my district is actually wholly encompassed by okay. by Kent County. Okay. Yep. Um, Are you on the border of a couple other counties. Or correct. Right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. By, by border, uh, Ionia County. Actually, no, just my Calm County, and no, just my Calm County. Okay. So, but so the only reason I'm talking about like your district is like you know we're talking about uh, doing policy that fits our priorities. We represent districts of approximately ninety thousand people. You probably know the number off the top of your head that we're supposed to be aiming for in this redistricting deal, Brian. But you know, ninety-one thousand two fifty, I think, <laughs> two forty-seven. I had a feeling you would at least have a, a better guess than about ninety thousand. But it is about ninety thousand, and and uh, uh, as we, you know, as we go about making our policy, you know, our the the priorities of our districts, the people of our districts, um, those things are you know heavy on our minds. You know, we know what our our uh, people think about it because as um, Rep Tisdale said on our last episode when he was a guest, uh, you know, we go to church with these people and we eat at their restaurants. I mean, when, when the restaurants were closed, that was very personal to us because we all know the restaurant owners in our district. Um, the governor has a different, and this would be true of any governor, divided, not divided, whatever, but adding to the, diff- like just one more element adding to this difficulty is just the fact that like, we, you know, we're very close to our constituents. We spend a lot of time with them. We're very easily know anybody who wants to know their state representative um, has the opportunity to do that. Not everybody knows that. Not everybody takes advantage of it, but it's pretty easy to find your state rep. Uh, it's not so easy to find a governor in a state of 10 million people and however many, you know, million or uh, uh, thousands of square miles our state is. So um, I think that's a really good point that, that we're trying to do our policy priorities and just the nature of our job. And this is by, you know, I think this is by the design of our constitutional system. We have, we have uh, reasons to pursue policies that the governor might or might not have. Yeah. That's without even getting into the fact that we had kind of struggles between the administration and the legislature about who should be making decisions. Yeah. yeah. Certainly talked about in a handful of other uh, episodes, Drew, uh, Andrew Wheeler, but uh, the, yeah, the, those are, those are additional wrinkles. I think in this problem. Yeah. And I think that um, so much for me anyway, this comes up a lot when I'm at home talking to constituents you know, because the question is always, why can't you just do this? Right. And anytime <laughs> the word justice in a sense, and it's a totally fair question. Um, and, and frankly, boy, I mean, at the topic of dissatisfying days, it's so hard for me to go to constituents and say, you agree on this. I agree on this. We all think this is good policy. And unfortunately, it's never going to go across the finish line. I can't tell you how many issues I've had, not because the House doesn't support it, not even because the Senate doesn't support it, but because it's just it's, it won't be signed into law for any given number of reasons. And that's where, that's where at least where I see it most is when, when I've got to communicate to constituents, the process that I see every day here at Lansing. Well, it goes even a little bit further than that too, because what's, what, what makes sense to my district in, in rural Kent County as a, as a conservative district in rural Kent County may not make sense to Rep Tisdall's constituents in suburban Southeast Michigan, yeah. even though that's a conservative district. Mm-hmm. So not only do we have to get, do we have to get consensus with the Senate and have the governor who's a Democrat sign into law, but we still have to come to consensus with people of our same party that just represent different dynamics and, and different demographics and socioeconomics. And so it, it's a conversation that just has to has to happen. And people have referred to it as, as watching the sausage be made. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, get, it gets convoluted sometimes. Yeah. So a weird, a weird aspect of that. It's like, uh, as I think both of you guys have, have already uh, uh, alluded to, sometimes we start the sausage making process 
knowing that that sausage is never going to make its way to the grill. Yep. The, the grill. That sausage is just going to go bad. It's just going to go bad. That sidey die, that thing is moldy. Oh my gosh. Got to be thrown out. About it. Uh, that's, I should not, I should not have continued this metaphor, but <laughs> you know, but you do the, the, the point is like you, you know, we, we have, and sometimes, I mean, I guess we don't actually know, right? We don't, we don't literally know what's going to happen with a bill. So if you think you have a good policy idea, I mean, you want to try to pursue it. Amen. You know, you want to prod these things and see what you can do. Well, and especially if it's a priority of your district yep. and, and your constituents, uh, it's important to your constituents. Yeah. Uh, at, at some point, you just you just go through the process and see where you can take it yep. and then start the process of, OK, uh, how can we make this work for your district? Uh, Rep. Tizzle, sorry, he was just in here. So yeah, yeah, <laughs> he's, on yeah. my, he's on my mind. Uh, or how do we make it work for your district up in the Upper Peninsula, yep. Representative Lefebvre? Yep. How do we make it work for Representative Steenland's district, mm -hmm. uh, which is a Democrat district over in, in Macomb County, I think? Uh, to try to get that coalition of support to yeah. to get it to the governor. Yeah, I think I think you know we've spoken about the the issues with that. Now we're or the confusion, I guess, with what the governor will sign. Then I think the point that both of you just brought up is, what do we do with you know this is just good policy, right? We do have a duty to just push good policy. If something is good for the state, not just good for our district, good for other districts, we have a duty, I think, to push that. And we've seen that, and knowing that it may die. Um, okay, but Brian, you said it, right? How do I, how do I make this work for a rep Steenland? How do I make this work for uh, a rep on the other side of the aisle so that I can get bipartisan support? We, all of us in this room have probably had to do that where we go across the aisle and, and people may ask you're the majority. Why you need to do, why do you need to do that? Well, if, if we want to get this idea across the finish line, we have to show bipartisan support. Otherwise it's dead on arrival. And, and, you know, does that mean negotiating sometimes? Yeah, I think it does. And certainly there are red lines that, that we wouldn't cross with, with a given policy. And that's sometimes where we find ourselves. But I think at the end of the day, our duty is to push good policy. And I think we've seen that already is, is our willingness to spend our time and resources on bills, understanding they probably will not get signed. I think you know, the clearest example that we've done in the last several months is voter ID. Yeah, yeah. Oh, perfect example. We, we voted... Uh, through both houses, uh, a bill to strengthen our voter ID laws, uh, a common uh, objection over the last uh, few years to that to that nationwide has been that it's not easy enough or uh, the state should make it easier to get state IDs. So we also adopted a bill to um, fund state IDs for anyone who can't afford them, although they are relatively expensive anyway, but still, it, I think it's fair enough to agree we shouldn't make that an impediment. Um, so if you can't afford a state ID under our legislation, you could have gotten one. And that was vetoed by the governor. I, and I'm just going to say, like, sorry, that policy is so clearly appropriate and and that that needed to be demonstrated uh, so obviously. And it, it is not controversial with our voters. I, don't, I doubt that it is truly controversial in any district in the state. It was vetoed anyway. I can't really give you a logical explanation for that. Uh, because again, it's a very commonly uh, agreed on topic. But uh, you know, in the even even knowing or again not really knowing, but thinking as we did, this is probably not going to become law. It was still just an appropriate policy to try to achieve to make a point um, and uh, to make to make a point of the importance of of responsible citizenship and secure elections. 
And the fact that it wasn't uh, signed into law doesn't mean that we wasted our time. I mean, right. I think it was still yep. the right, that was the right work to be done. Yep. You know, another example that's really big, we don't actually have like a bill pending yet. Well, if we if we do, it might, it would be a committee. I'm saying we don't have a bill like on the floor about this, but uh, you know, there are a couple of pipelines in, in the Straits of Mackinac right now. And there's basically a plan to build a tunnel and put the pipelines in there, which makes a ton of sense to almost everybody. In fact, I can't tell you a single time I've talked to a human being who thinks that's a bad <laughs> idea. And yet we don't think that we could actually achieve that through, uh, you know, bill right now. And if you went to your constituent and said that, you could, I mean, talk about not a satisfactory answer. Yeah. You can't give them a factual or logical explanation for why the state wouldn't make this happen. Well, well going back to your voter ID conversation, uh, something like 60% of voters in the state of Michigan, Republican and Democrat alike, support voter ID laws for the state of Michigan. And not only that, but I'm pretty sure we had enough Democrats support that bill to override the veto initially, right? Uh, do, you, do you guys remember? I, th I think we had an override yes. majority. I think uh, we had two thirds on that one. Uh, perhaps not on that specific bill, but all right, never mind. I digress. Yeah. Uh, no, but, <laughs> but you bring up a great point about we have had a know, couple. the added variable to this equation that sometimes has a zero coefficient and sometimes has a non-zero coefficient. Come on. Is you know I don't know what that means. Crazy. <laughs> is this crazy idea that a bill can pass with only yeah. no votes from Republicans be vetoed by the governor, come back to the House for an override, and not make it through? I mean, that is what really screws up this equation yeah. of divided government where you think, oh, okay, we'll just override it. No, you won't. We have been shown that you will not do that. Super I'm, I'm blanking on what bill was. We did have a bill that passed like 104 to yes. whatever is left. Yeah, I think there was three no votes from Republicans. Yeah. yeah, no, that's a great point. I mean, and it does, by the way, it illustrates, it, it probably relates back to the very beginning of, you know, what we were saying 10 or 15 minutes ago here is the, like, the, I'm, I was making the point like the reps are close to their districts. Well, that's all of us. Yeah. Right. But again, like the, the governor is just not, she's not, she's not in those conversations with such uh, intensity. So actually that brings up a good question. Is that a good thing or a bad thing from a general philo political philosophical perspective? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? That the government, I think it's a necessary thing. Yeah. Right. I mean, I, I definitely think it's, it's just consistent with the theory of American government of, of dividing, you know, separating the powers into these different branches that have different kind of speeds and attitudes and responsibilities and strengths and weaknesses. Um, it, it, as, as we, as we've discussed here in other times, I mean, it can be frustrating to, a, you know, partisan, I don't really, I don't mean like a partisan, like Republican Democrat, like a person who's got an issue that they're like dedicated to fixing and making perfect. But in, in the, you know, the grand scheme of things, as we deal with policy issues across the spectrum, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's probably a good design to kind of dilute all of our votes into 110, right? Because whatever. None, none of us knows exactly what we should do on every last issue. And then I don't know. I hear Beeler does. <laughs> He's not the only one who thinks that. <laughs> uh, well, we, we're not here to name names. <laughs> but, you know, and then mix it, mix our opinions with the Senate and then you know, ultimately give the, the veto power to the governor and theoretically the power to overcome the veto with a strong enough majority of the legislature, which, you know, does it does kind of speak to the idea that like the legislature is the closest thing to the people. Our constitution, the state constitution, begins with the phrase, I think it's the, that all political power is inherent in the people. 
Um, and so having that override authority, you know, I think all of these things are kind of consistent with the, with our plan of government. I, I do think that I have to imagine when and you probably know the first person to think of it who thought of the override vehicle. I cannot imagine that they assumed that if the executive of one party vetoed something, that it would come back for an override and the members of that party would switch their votes. I just that's the last shot I'll take. I just I truly think that that speaks to the to the partisan nature and where some of our colleagues really get their direction from, not necessarily from their constituents, but perhaps from. I think that's else. a really good point. Yeah. And, and I, I can't say I recall or if I ever knew and I doubt that I ever did know what whether our like, you know, our federal constitution has this function. I don't know whether that was the first written constitution to have that function. Uh, I definitely don't know how at the time of our founding, the king and parliament kind of stuff was happening, but maybe there's a version of it there or was or is now, or I don't know. But but uh, but I definitely think it is true that in American government, I mean, certainly by the time our constitution of 1963 or whatever was adopted, we knew that this dynamic existed. But but at the time that of, of the American founding, I definitely think it's true that uh, that our founders like hoped I mean, they wrote that they didn't want kind of, you know, faction parties um, to become dominant in the politics. And so the structure, the structure sort of biased decisions, you know, of a part of the government towards the part of the government, yeah. you know, to kind of jealously guard the, par- the powers yeah. of that branch of government. Um, and I do think that when the legislature refuses to make its policy priorities more important than its partisan priorities. And that could happen in any case. I mean, I, I will say, I think the last veto override that was successful in Michigan was when the Republicans controlled the legislature mm-hmm. and the governorship. Mm-hmm. So it can happen. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's a good demonstration of the principle you're talking about. Uh, but yeah, I think that it, I, and maybe we're probably gonna have to do an episode on this now. Yeah. We're doing, kind of, <laughs> doing kind of a lot of structural yeah. stuff right in the last few episodes, but I think it's a great point. You know, standing up for the part of the government that you're in um, is part of your job. I mean, that's part of your oath to the Constitution to say, this is our responsibility. We own, I mean, you gave a great floor speech on this. Yeah. Uh, Thank you. In July, probably, Thank when you. we did. Yeah. What, what Emergency powers. Yeah, but yeah, that's right. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So, Brian, we've talked about category of bills that we put on the governor's desk that we believe she will sign. Category two, bills that we put on her desk that we know she probably won't sign. There's a third category of one that is the budget <laughs> that has to get signed. <laughs> and you've, you're currently on the legislative side of it. You, of course, have seen the executive side of it with, with your father's experience. What does that negotiation process look like? And why is that a total horse of a different color? Well, the, the reason why it's a horse of a different color is because it has to get done. Legally, it has to get done. It's our <laughs> yeah. state law that it has to get done. Someone once asked what happens if it doesn't. And the government shuts down. Uh, but yeah. I mean, we, we've seen it at the federal level. Right. I mean, we, we've seen federal government shutdowns. I was because, saying, I think we should come up with a creative punishment for ourselves if it doesn't. Well, oh, we, don't we, prob- we, we don't get paid. So there's there's one. Until we get reimbursed. By the <laughs> right, right. I, we, can be, we can do that in another episode. <laughs> Go on. Maybe we don't get reimbursed, but yeah, maybe we don't get reimbursed. You you know, frankly, maybe it makes sense to say like you can't like session has to happen every day. Yeah, until until there's there's a budget in place. If we go. We should probably not be spitballing these constitutional amendments on our podcast, but maybe, maybe we should. So anyway, there's a lot of different things. Uh, The reason why it's a horse of a different color is because we are statutorily required 
to pass the state budget. Not only that, not, not only are we statutorily required, but we're morally obligated. That's what we're sent here to do. We are, we're not, we're not sent here to do the majority of the random stuff that we do. We are sent here to fund the, the, the government and, and, and make sure our state runs effectively. That, that's ultimately it's literally what the only thing we have to do. Right. It's the only thing we are legally bound to do here in, right. in a year. To like really deliver the point, part of the reason that like we need to take that obligation seriously is because we there are things that we tell the citizens they have to do that require the government to make it happen. Right. If your birthday is on October 1st and the government is shut down on October 1st, you're probably not going to have a renewed driver's license. Right. Then you're not allowed to drive, right? I mean, obviously, like you, you know, you would expect like a police officer to make an accommodation for this, but it's not. It's not but they're not yeah, obligated. Yeah, it's not totally yeah. responsible on our part, on the on the part of the, the police government. officer or even patrol. Yeah, but you know, this, so I mean, both of those are good examples. Or like, you know, you're supposed to have your kid in school. If we didn't, if we literally, if there was literally no funding for schools, we would need to, you know, re-examine a requirement that kids under eight or 16 or whatever it is are supposed to be in school every day. Yeah. Truancy yeah. laws. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it, you know, it's a, it's, it, it puts us in the position again of having to take that responsibility very seriously. When we tell the citizens, there are things that you have to participate in, uh, that the government controls the controls your access to. Right. And then if we close the government without changing those laws, I think that'd be kind of a crummy thing to do to the citizens. Yep, yep. And it's it's an interesting process to watch because you have the House leadership, the Senate leadership, and the governor's administration sitting down saying, okay, what are you going to sign? What are you actually going to sign? And I'm sure there's some discussion about, I may sign this, I may not. There's some leverage that, you know, you can put this in, but I want this. And of course, there's that kind of horse trading, but it's this really interesting kind of dance to watch as you have these groups that the majority of the year are diametrically opposed on policy, forcing themselves to come together because they know it's a requirement. Well, not only diametrically opposed on policy, but totally pragmatic, different philosophies when it comes to the role of government in our lives, yeah. right? And the, and the cost to support that role of government. So like from a fiscally conservative standpoint, I, I believe all three of us here sitting down believe that the smaller the government, the better. I mean, it's oversimplification, yeah. right? Uh, and and that the role of government should, is currently probably far bigger than it needs to be. Whereas our our, our governor has the opposite mm -hmm. opinion that mm -hmm. governor should that the government should be bigger, mm -hmm. should have more funding, should play a more central role in our lives. And so, not only are you opposed on policy, but just general philosophical beliefs are are. Contra contrary to each other. Yeah, yeah. And so when you're talking about size of the budget, I mean, <laughs> we're talking about poker chips, you know, this line item, that line item, that is, that's the whole pot right there is the actual size of the budget from a negotiating standpoint, which again, it can be frustrating to see that grow and grow and grow. And that's, that's probably another episode of how do we, how do we rein that in and give people some of their own money back that we confiscated from them. Um, but, but you're right. I mean, it's, it's more than a poker chip <laughs> and you're approaching from one person who says less is more. And one person who says more is more. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, you have to come together. Brian, thanks for coming on Drew World, World Order. We yeah. have, should we name this an easier name? <laughs> Drew World uh, Order. Or, that Drew is actually harder to say than I would have expected. change the name. You're, you're our first non-Andrew guest. So you should be honored. I would say. I, hey, you know what? I appreciate it. <laughs> I've, I've been looking forward to this for 
quite a few months now. So thank you very much. I'm, I'm glad to be here, especially uh, talking about divided government. That's, That's always right. fun. For the record, uh, just for all the listeners out there, I would like to be given a shot to try non-divided government next term. So Agreed. just keep that in mind out there. We'll, we'll be able to get a lot more things done that way. That's right. That's right. It'll be a totally different conversation. But thanks so much for joining us this time. We'll catch you next time on Drew World Order.